Good morning. The scripture reading for today can be found in 1 Chronicles chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. 1 Chronicles chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. That's found on page 341 in the Black Bibles in your pews. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. So all Israel was recorded in genealogies, and these are written in the book of the kings of Israel. And Judah was taken into exile in Babylon because of their breach of faith. Now the first to dwell again in their possessions in the cities were Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the temple servants. And some of the people of Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh, lived in Jerusalem. Good morning. Again, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken. We thank you that you have welcomed us into your family, that you have given us your grace in Christ. God, would you open our eyes this morning to see wonderful things from your word? Would you reestablish how we think about the world, how we think about our place in the world, how we see you, God, as we sit under the truth of your word. Speak to us, build us up, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So just jump right with me into the notes. This is our second week in the books of Chronicles. We began our sermon series here last week. We're, we're, we're spending an extended period of time walking through the books of Chronicles. Uh, and we're calling our time together, building a house for God's name. Uh, but this morning, we are going to tackle what is oftentimes in a lot of people's estimation, some of the most difficult or maybe boring or hard to understand uh, portions of the scripture. We're talking about genealogies, lists of names, lists of people and nations that we may not be familiar with or understand their place or why are they in there. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to spend some time this morning seeking to understand why does the Bible have all these lists of names at different points? And as we laid out last week, uh, we, we began our time with these wonderful verses, things like 2 Timothy chapter 3, where Timoth- or Paul says to Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God, right? So when we read these lists of names, this is God's word to us, breathed out from God himself by his spirit through uh, human authors to speak things and to make known things about himself and his ways to us. And I think a lot of times we come to these scriptures and wonder how to make sense of them. And so we're gonna spend time this morning digging into the genealogy and what it's about. So, but before we do that, I want to just give a brief review from last week. We laid out the situation and the purpose of Chronicles. Look with me at letter A. The books of Chronicles are a really important part of the Old Testament. In these books, we have a really rich 
theological telling of Israel's history with a particular focus in two ways. There's two major themes at play in the books of Chronicles. We see the emphasis on David's royal dynasty or the kingdom, the king of Israel, the rightful king. And we also see at play the temple worship, right? So essentially the major themes of the book of Chronicles are the people of God experience life with God, joy, uh, uh, his, his presence when they are up under the rightful king and pursuing rightly ordered worship before him. So these books, letter B, provide a necessary perspective on Israel's story and therefore our story as the people of God and they're a needed supplement to biblical theology. So to rightly understand these books, we have to understand their situation and the purpose for which they're written. As we saw last week, we, we read the same verses last week in 1 Chronicles 9. They gave several principles or pieces of information to situate when is the chronicler writing his book. And it's after the Babylonian exile. So when the people were taken away into Babylon as judgment for their disobedience, we see by the hand of God, and they've been brought back to begin to return to the land. Now, if that uh, doesn't mean a lot to you, go back and listen to last week's sermon. I spent a lot of time unpacking what the Babylonian exile is, what it means for them to return, but that's the situation. These are people coming back to the land to re-inhabit it, to build the temple again, to rightly order their lives around the Lord and his desires. And this is the situation into which it's written. So the primary purpose of the author of the Chronicles seems to be an attempt to remind the people of God that their distinction is in rightly ordered worship to him. They could be tempted to believe in the situation they find themselves in, which is hard and difficult and daunting. They could be despairing that God has forgotten them or not made good on his promises but the author of Chronicles wants the people of God to remember that the main thing that gives shape to who they are as the people of God is worship, rightly seeking the face of the Lord. And so this is what the book is about. So look at Roman numeral two. So what do we do with these nine chapters of names? I'm not going to make anybody raise their hand, but uh, this is one of those places where when you get to it in your Bible reading plan, you just kind of skip over for a couple days, or your eyes are glazed as you kind of like read through it. I'm not gonna make anybody confess right now or raise their hand, but I think we've all been in that spot, right? It's because we don't understand what's going on. A bunch of names that I can't pronounce, which is why I haven't had people have to stand up here and read it to you, of situations that I don't understand, way back in a day with nations happening upon each other and going out of order and this guy was this guy's father and then we're all of a sudden talking about three generations down the road and how in the world am I supposed to follow along, right? This is one of the most difficult and hard parts of the scripture. Look at letter A. Few parts of the Bible are more, more difficult to understand for the modern reader than genealogies. Right? We don't actually live in a culture that does history this way or tells our story this way. 
Very few people, right, get together and just recount the names of their family members. Did you do that at your last family reunion? Down through the ages, right? Being far removed from the national identities and the family histories that are in these, we often fail to grasp their meaning, find ourselves get bogged down in the difficult names, and therefore we're tempted to not engage these portions of Scripture at all. This is actually why I think it's important for us to spend a Sunday talking about it. When was the last time you heard a sermon on the genealogies? Right? But all Scripture is what? Breathed out by God for the building up, the edification, the reproof, the correction, helping us make sense of who God is, who we are in the world, his purposes, what he desires. These are profitable for us. And so we want to do some work to get to that spot. The sheer space devoted to genealogies at times in the scripture, and specifically the extent of the genealogies in First Chronicles, demonstrates that these are important things to the biblical authors, right? There's a scarcity of space, right? This is not, the biblical authors do not live in a YouTube generation, right? Where mounds and mounds and mounds and mounds of content is produced every day. They live in a scarcity of information produced. This guy has a couple scrolls to write down these breathed out words of God. And he takes nine chapters to list name, 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 name. This matters to him, right? There, this, the sheer space of this demonstrates that this matters, right? Although it may not seem very important to us, we have to at least consider the reality that such matters were of great concern to the initial audiences. So to uncover some of the importance of these in general and the chapters of Chronicles in specific, I want to give us a couple tools that will help us read them. And then we're going to walk through a broad flyover of them and seek to uh, understand their structure and style and some of those realities. So look at letter D. What are, what are the purposes of the genealogies? Why are they even in the Bible? Number one, genealogies tie the present situation to the past, right? So one of the primary reasons that the authors of the Bible put in genealogies uh, is to demonstrate to the present readers uh, that they have a dynamic tie or relationship to God's purposes as they've unfolded throughout history, right? So the author of Chronicles is writing to these people and he wants them to know right now, right now where you find yourself, you are a part of God's purposes in the world. You are a part of God's purposes in creation, in redemption, how he has brought forth his story throughout the earth. You, people of God, you are a part of this. This is your story. And he goes all the way back to creation itself to tell us the purpose that God had in speaking the world into being. 
This is your story. This is where we find ourselves, right? So he wants to tie us and uh, the people in history back into these stories. So to recount these family lines does more than just tell a family history. It reminds people how they are situated in God's story. So number one reason why these are in the Bible is to tell you you're a part of a bigger story than what's going on in your life right now. And we'll talk about why that matters here in a minute. Number two, the second reason that these are in the Bible is they demonstrate that God is faithful. Reading these lists of names, you might not be quick to deduce from them. One of the reasons that these are in there is to remind you that God is going to accomplish his purposes. Even when people at every single turn try to stand in the way of them. When we mess them up all over the place, God is faithful, right? This reminds us God is going to get his way and he is going to accomplish his purposes no matter what. When we are faithless, he is faithful. That's one of the things we have to understand here, right? Even go back, take your Bible, do this. Go to Chronicles 1.1, okay? First Chronicles 1.1. Adam just jumps out of the gate with a name. Adam, what are we meant to do? Go back to Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, right? This is the purpose that God set out to create everything. The next name, Seth. Now that is charged with meaning. Why? Because Adam and Eve sinned. And then God came to Eve and said, it's through your seed, I am going to raise up one to crush the head of the serpent. Then she has two kids and she's going, okay, here it is. God's going to do what he promised to do. And then what happens? One of those kids kills the other one. Cain murders Abel and the, we see one generation removed from the creation of humanity and this promise to see redemption, they can't do it. Cain kills Abel and then Seth is appointed as the one through whom this will come, right? So our minds are meant to go, oh, wait, wait, wait. From the jump, this thing's been frustrated and kept back because people are sinful and we cannot get it right. But God keeps working. God keeps faithful to his promises. This is what's happening. And so these names aren't just names. They are hooks into whole stories of what God has done in the past, what he has accomplished, how he has worked, what he is seeking to do. They're full of meaning. This is a small apologetic. If I had all the time in the world, I would preach a sermon on why the genealogies are an apologetic for you to catechize your children. Because the author of Chronicles assumes you know the story. 
And if you don't know the story, then these do just fly over your head, right? We, we aren't connected to them because we're not familiar with the, the movement of these stories. These were meant to fill the imagination of the people of God. So when we heard this recounted, we go, oh, God has been faithful. God has been faithful. God has been faithful. God has been faithful. That person, they couldn't fulfill their fidelity to God, but God kept going. They couldn't do this. God kept going. They couldn't accomplish God's work. He kept working. They are meant to demonstrate to us God is faithful. And it's meant to fill you with faith that he's going to keep working today. You and me are no different than all of these people laid out in this story. We cannot accomplish God's purposes. We cannot be faithful to the end. But God will have his way. God will redeem. He will restore. Look at the top of page two. I'm just going to look at one more of these. Genealogies number three give us a history of how the nations were situated in relation to God's people. Now, you might not get this right away, but I I, I want you to catch this. There is a subtle thing that's happening in the genealogies that both remind you that God is working and bringing out a people for himself and they're meant to remind you you aren't like or, or you're not unlike the nations around you. This is really important. Not only do the genealogies situate God's people with what God had done in the past, but it helps them situate themselves among the nations. Israel was always to remember that their story was only a part of a broader story of God's redemptive purposes in the world. They were tied to the nations of the earth. And though they were called out by God to be a people for his possession, in many ways, they were just like the nations. And their calling was meant to be for the sake of the nations. So here's one of the things that the genealogy does, right? You could get puffed up thinking that you're awesome because you're part of God's people. And the genealogies remind you, hey, remember this nation over here that you despise and you think they're God-hating Gentiles? Y'all have the same grandmother. That's what they do. This is like what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 6 when he says, hey, all these sinners out there that deserve wrath and the judgment of God, and so were you all, but you've been washed Why did you get washed? Not because of the greatness of your name, not because of your awesomeness, but because God had mercy upon you. Genealogies are meant to bring us into full-faced awareness that we are not unlike the nations of the world. But for the grace of God, we would all be that. That is one of the reasons that they're in here, to remind you hey, y'all have the same family tree. You're not that far removed from that pagan Gentile nation over there that you're so quick to judge. But for God's grace, that would be you. And it reminds us of that front and center. Look at letter F. I'm gonna give you just a couple things on the style of the genealogy. So there's several things as you read. I wanna just give you as a tool for how you read them, to make aware of things. Number one, 
as you're reading through these lists of names, look for places where there's narrative comments inserted into the genealogy, right? So he'll go, name, 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 who, and then he puts like a sentence or two about somebody. Why? You should ask yourself the question, why? Why does the author break the style when he does? Why does he situate and highlight that person's behavior or action or something that happened in their story? Take note of times when the author breaks the flow from the list of names to highlight or make comment on something, right? The comments are instructive toward catching elements of the author's intentions, what their worldview is that's going to be expressed later in the narrative. I want you to turn with me to 1 Chronicles 4, page 336 in that Bible if you're using one in the pew. Look at 1 Chronicles 4, 9. Here's a, here's a good example. This took on some popularity with a book several years ago. But there's a function that the comment on Jabez has in the broader picture of the books, right? So he's going, name, 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 name. Jabez was more honorable than his brothers. So he's going, I want to highlight something to you about what it means to be an honorable person. There's, there's something that is important for you to know. As I'm making a case for how you are to respond in the world, I want you to see something. He was more honorable than his brothers. And his mother called his name Jabez, saying, because I bore him in pain. Verse 10, Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying that you would bless me and enlarge my border and that your hand might be with me, that you would keep me from harm so that it might not bring me pain. The author of the Chronicles wants you to go, there's something honorable in pursuing the face of God. Jabez embodied, right? He stops his whole narrative and wants you to catch something. He wants you to see something there. It reinforces a theme that's going to be picked up all through the book, which is, hey, people of God, you're called to seek God. You're called to seek God. And so he's going to put on display one person who did that. And we're meant to see that. Okay, so narrative comments. Number two, there's a break in the birth order. So a lot of times a style is utilized, specifically in Chronicles. The author introduces a group of siblings. He says, this guy and his brother, this, this, this. And then he traces the line out of order. So he doesn't go to the firstborn. He goes to like the thirdborn or the fourthborn. And then he highlights their names. This does several things. Number one, it calls attention to specific lines. Also, it demonstrates a theological truth that God does not choose to accomplish his purposes the ways that people would, right? In the ancient Near East, it, the purposes of a family always went through the firstborn. And God regularly didn't do it that way. I mean, from the jump. He would accomplish his purposes in the way that no per person would have picked. Demonstrating that his wisdom looks foolish to the world. We got to see this. 
Even in the genealogies themselves, we see these things happen. The last is watch for the amount of space given to a particular line. This is just highlighting it, right? In Chronicles, there's two that are super long, Judah and Levi. And we're going to see this is about the king and about the priests. These things are right at the center of this guy's purposes. Whereas like a brother like Naphtali gets one verse in the genealogy. And you go, why'd you just blow over that guy? Right? You didn't even talk about that guy. You spent three chapters talking about Judah, one verse talking about that guy. He wants you to recognize the importance of something. Okay, so those are some tools. I hope they're beneficial to you. Look at number three. So what's happening in 1 Chronicles 1, not 1 through 9? The first nine chapters of Chronicles are an introduction for the whole work. The chapters introduce a situation, the way of viewing the world, the intentions, the main themes of the work that are to follow. So beginning, if you go back, first we have from Adam to the people of Israel. This is Chronicles 1, 1 to 2, verse 2. So it begins with the father of all humanity, Adam, demonstrating that this is a global story, right? This is a global cosmic story about God and his desires for his creation. He wants to, the author of Chronicles, situate you right in the purposes of God that have been unfolding since Genesis 1-1. Look at the top of page three. It's important for the purposes of the writer that we recognize many of these names are filled with meaning, right? He assumes that we know the stories, not only the stories themselves, but the meaning and the shape of these stories, right? So what are they? Beginning with Adam, we're brought back to the fundamental purpose for all mankind. Why are you made? This story wants you to be face to face with that. You are made because the eternal God desired to relate to you. He wanted to live in communion with you. This is why he spoke light into being, why he laid the stars in the heavens, why he structured the world, why he built together order and purpose and structure in the created order so that he could share himself with those that were made in his image. This is the fundamental purpose of humanity, right? So we get this from the jump. Number five, the breach of faith that Adam had then led to a loss of the ability for mankind to fulfill its vocation, right? He's kicked out of the garden, separated from God's presence. He can no longer relate to him. He can no longer live in communion with him. He cannot stand before him. Now the story of God's redemption as it unfolds is the story of how God seeks to reestablish his people to a place where they can experience his presence and live with him according to his purposes. The line of God's purposes passes from one generation to the next till it comes to Abraham. Look at verse 27. And I want you to notice something. Again, here's a style thing. Why does the author say Abram's name twice? Right? He gets to name, 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 Abram. That is Abraham. That's charged with meaning. Again, 
God came to this guy called Abram. He told him, leave everything behind. Come and find a land that I'm going to show you. And in your family, I am going to release blessing to all of the earth. Abram picks up, follows, and God says, I'm going to change your name from Abram to Abraham. So we see even in this little sentence, the chronicler wants us to be face to face with what God has been doing to redeem the world, right? He highlights the importance of Abraham in God's purposes in only a few words. Abraham was to be the father of many nations and the one through whom the seed would come that would bless the world. Look at Genesis 12 verse three here. This is God's promise to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So from 1 Chronicles one twenty-eight to 2 verse 2, we follow from Abraham all the way to Israel, right? So we get this way. Now, I want to pause for a minute because you guys are going, what, why, how, what does this mean? Here's what I want you to see. In 55 verses, these are meant to be a wake-up call to the people of God to get out of their my life size blinders and get into God's purposes. Okay, so let me tie this together for you with the situation where they are. These exiles have come back to the land, right? They've marched across the desert. They're there. They're trying to rebuild the temple. They're trying to be in accordance with God's purposes. And it gets really hard, really painful. They're oppressed. It's difficult. And what we see in Haggai, kids just got to like get to soccer practice. Wait, 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 we need to like update the kitchen. How in the world am I supposed to host anybody in the small kitchen I got? I gotta, I gotta give to this. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Okay, here's the next soccer practice, dance recital, this thing, this thing, this thing, this thing. 20 years go by, you wake up and you haven't followed God's purposes. Just getting caught up in the stream of my life, my way, this, this, what's in front of me, what's in front of me, what's in front of me, what's in front of me. What the author of Chronicles wants to do in these 55 verses is take your blinders off and go, hey, family of God, you are a part of the purposes of God for all creation. Do not get blinded to that reality. Here's, here's what I find. I find oftentimes we walk through our lives really, really, really focused just on what like the next little thing is, right? We want a little more, a little more money, a little more freedom, a little more travel, a little more what? What's the next little more thing? We just want that. Have we asked the question, what does God want? What does God want? Genesis 1-1, God created everything, hung the stars in place, put the sun and the moon in place, structured the world, ordered it, established it, made you out of dust, breathed into your lungs so that you could have life with him and live in accordance with what he wants. Do we ask that question? 
these lists of names that don't seem to mean anything to you are meant to be a wake-up call. Hey, the story that you are a part of is way bigger than our little life. My little thing that's in front of me. My, like, next little circumstance that I'm just trying to get through. Now, again, hear, hear me when I say this. I'm not talking about, like, those crisis moments where our world gets really small and we have to give our lives to that thing in front of us. I'm talking about just the temptation in our life to get subsumed and drawn up into the cares of this life, the love of other things, the stuff that we can't get our heads around, right? God wants us to have a bigger view of the world. Hey, people of God, you are part of a story that is about God's creation and his redeeming of all things. Are we aware of that? Are we alive to that? Are we living in that? In 55 verses, he goes, hey, your story, the thing you find yourself in right now is way bigger than you, way bigger than you. And then he moves through the people of Israel. We see the tribe of Judah. This is letter C. We get three chapters devoted to people from Judah. And essentially what he's doing in this is reminding you of the importance that God is going to send a king. He's going to send a king. Look at Genesis 49 here under number two. The author presumes that the reader is familiar with the promise given to Judah that God's true and rightful king would come from his line. Genesis 49. Jacob, as he's dying, tells his sons, the scepter will not leave from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. So the entire structure of this section is intended to highlight David because in the narrative in a little bit, God is gonna give a promise to David that at the time of the writing was yet to be fulfilled. And it's that there would be a king that would sit on David's throne forever. Now we know from the New Testament, Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise, right? There is an importance that God is going to send a king to rule over the world. That is something we want to see in this. Okay, then letter D, we move through the tribes that are east of the Jordan. He kind of moves around them. And then he comes to Levi and he puts the brakes on again, right? He flies over these other ones and then he slows way down. Again, with Levi, the chronicler shows, he slows down his genealogy to give an emphasis and importance on a function and purpose of their work at the center of Israel's life. Now, the Levites were the priests. They were the ones who administered the worship of God, made sure that the people of God were instructed in his ways, and they made sure the people of God sought to live in conformity with God's holiness. Go to page four. The longest narrative comment in this section is found in verses 31 to 33. 
And these highlight the importance of David's institution of singing at the heart of Israel's worship. This is, again, if we're talking about ways to read these, when somebody breaks the pattern to tell you something, pay attention. So in 1 Chronicles 6, we slow down and we hear this. This is the longest narrative section in it. These are the men whom David put in charge of the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark rested there. They ministered with song before the tabernacle of the tent of meeting until Solomon built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem and they performed their service according to their order. These are the men who served and their sons. And then he blows through the rest of the tribes. He highlights the genealogy of Saul and then he comes to talk about their own situation in chapter nine. So he does this tour de force of the whole land, kind of recounting who these people are and what's going on there. But I want to step back and with the time we have left, just highlight a couple things that I think we can derive. Like what's the theology of Chronicles one through nine? What are some points that we can see here? I just want to give you five as we close. Number one, we see front and center the mission of God, right? The chronicler begins his story with Adam because the story of God's purposes for his creation. The God of Genesis 1 is the one who created all things, who's overseeing all things, who's accomplishing his purposes in all things. So to rightly understand this, we have to understand why God made everything. And we've talked about that, right? God made everything so that he could be in relationship with his people and make known his purposes in and through them. After the fall, God did not throw this purpose away, but set out to bring redemption to it, right? So we read these names and it tells us God is on a mission. God is trying to accomplish something. God is fulfilling his purposes. He's making himself known. He's redeeming his creation, Though it has been tainted and tarnished because of sin, God is at work and he's been sovereignly overseeing his creation and his purposes faithfully throughout the generations. That invites us to ask a question. I said it a little bit earlier, but do you have like a God-sized vision of what God's at work doing in our lives? Do we ask the Lord what he is about? What is he accomplishing? What is he fulfilling? What is he doing? Okay, number two, the second thing that this shows us, letter B, is there is a, as some authors call it, this is a fancy term, a liturgical destiny for all of human history. So there's commentators, if you read enough on Chronicles, there's a few that highlight this. There's a unique perspective that the chronicler has, starting with Adam and then highlighting the Levitical priesthood. He's trying to show you at the center of human history is worship. This is what this is all about. This is about God redeeming people so that they can worship him so they can give adoration to him, so they can exalt him, so they can be rightly ordered around agreeing with who he is and who he's made himself known to be. 
This means that the center of the purposes of humanity is rightly ordered worship before God. So to live in communion with him so that his life would flow as we worship him, right? His desire is that out of every tribe, tongue, people, nation, there would be those that worship him. Whether, whether you're able to see it on the surface or not, the point of the genealogy in Chronicles is by telling a family history, it's meaning to show you what John sees in the book of Revelation when he sees every tongue, tribe, people, nation worshiping the Lamb of God. This is what is being knit together in this story, right? He is creating a redemptive plan in Christ Jesus to where all the nations of the earth, every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation will have those brought out from them to exalt him by singing his praises and glorifying his holy name. Salvation belongs to the Lord alone and to the lamb that sits upon the throne. That actually is what's being communicated to you in these boring lists of names. God is working to accomplish redemption for every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. So don't get caught up in the being bogged down in it. I can't pronounce them. Have your imagination captivated by the reality that God is stitching together a story that is going to result in the peoples of the earth giving adoration and worship to him because he alone can save. That is where this is going. Okay, letter C. A kingdom of priests. So what this is meaning to show us is that Israel was called out of the nations and God had called them to be a kingdom, a, a, a monarchy, right, of priests. That was going to be their identity. They were going to be this, this uh, entity, this national identity of priests before God. Priestly ministry was meant to be uh, intended to be more comprehensive than just the ministry of sacrificial cleansing, right? That's one of the things the priests did was they oversaw the sacrifice where God forgave them and placated his wrath toward their sin. They were essential aspects of stewarding God's presence among them. But we see here, and we're going to see as the narrative unfolds, that God's people were always meant to live offering themselves to the Lord ministering to him by offering themselves up in worship. The New Testament makes this explicit in places where the Old Testament is just looking for something. Right? In the New Testament, the sacrifice for sin has been accomplished once and for all. Right? Go read Hebrews 8 to 10. Jesus, the great high priest, has entered into the holy places to make atonement for your sin and for my sin and for any and all who will call upon his name, for their sin. That sacrifice is accomplished. The New Testament still says, though, that you and I, in Christ, are called to be a kingdom of priests. What's our priestly ministry then in the New Testament? 
It's to what Paul says in Romans 12, offer our whole selves as living sacrifices to the Lord, pleasing, rightly ordered worship to him. Look at letter D, awaiting a king. Though the post-exilic community did not possess national sovereignty, right? They're coming back. They're still under Cyrus. There was no son of David who sat on the throne. The author of Chronicles seems to possess a future hope that David will once again be restored. Although he emphasizes the reality that Israel can return to God through worship without national sovereignty, he still hopes that there will be a day when the son of David sits on the throne. He's hoping for that, longing for that, waiting for that. Which, this brings us to the last bit here. The importance of these things for you and I as believers in Jesus. With the emphasis on the king and the priesthood in Chronicles, Christians can recognize what was future for the author is now fulfilled in Christ, right? What he looked forward to with hope-filled expectation, Jesus has accomplished in his life, death, resurrection, right? Jesus is the true son of David, the one who is going to sit on the throne of David to rightly order and establish the kingdom of God over all the earth for all eternity. And he is the great high priest who offered himself to God in order to bring forgiveness and reconciliation. This is what this book is actually waiting for, right? So in Chronicles, we see the highlighting of these families saying, hey, what is important, people of God, is that there would be a king and a priest for you. And as believers in Jesus, we get to go back and go, God has accomplished this. He has sent the king, Christ Jesus, who has been given a name over every name. He's been exalted to the right hand of the Father and he will reign for all eternity, establishing and ordering God's kingdom in the earth. And he has been made a high priest by virtue of his life and the offering of his own blood that he might provide forgiveness for the sins of any and all who would call upon his name. Look at Jesus and see the fulfillment of all that has been waited for. The purposes of God, the plan of God, the mission of God to redeem and establish and reorder and recreate the world so that you and I might live in communion with him. It's been accomplished in Christ. Look no further. That's what we get to derive from this, right? So as we walk through this and we go, the king is really important. The priests are really important. We get to look and say, in Christ, these have been fulfilled fully and finally in him. And we get to cast ourselves upon him and worship him for who he is. Amen. Amen. Would you all stand?